0: You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey everybody! This is Natural Podcast episode number sixteen. This week we have a conversation with Dr. Marcy Ballunas. Marcy is a professor at the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy. Though in the course of preparing this, Marcy announced that she'll be leaving UConn soon and heading to the University of Michigan's Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Um, today you'll be hearing us talk about her group's work in the chemistry of natural products, especially around bioactive compound discovery where to find the coolest organisms, whether that's the tropics or deserts or glaciers, as well as the chemical underpinnings of symbiosis between bacteria and squid and a project at JGI around ants and the chemistry of their fungus farms. So, lots of topics covered and a really interesting conversation. Marcy's is one of the smartest human beings I know and I'm so glad I have the chance to bring you this recording. I should mention that this was recorded a few months ago because, once again, I'm behind on getting podcasts out, if you can tell. So, uh apologies to marcy for the late release but i hope you all enjoy the listen because it's a good one so here we go natural podcast episode 16 with marcy Balunis. hey marcy hey
1: marcy
0: hello how's it going good how are you
2: um fine i live in a pandemic so i'm no different than anyone else
0: (laughs) yeah i mean fine in 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 pandemic adjusted terms right
2: (laughs) yes yes exactly
0: I've always uh, mentally had you in in firmly in the in the chemistry bucket. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that that's ever necessarily like a good description of of anyone because chemistry means a lot, especially when you're working in natural products, right. there's There's many different avenues toward chemistry, but I, I, thats that's kind of where I had you. How would you describe what your research is now then after all of this kind of circuitous background and, and all the cool things you're doing now?
2: Sure. So my lab has really converged on the study of host microbe chemistry Mm -hmm. um, and the interactions. I am a chemist. like As much as I would, we incorporate loads of different kinds of biology. um, One of the best things that we do is work with this really great group of biologists that know what they're doing much better than I ever can at the level that that we're working. And so um, we do host microbe chemistry. We're interested in I like, I can sort of see when I'm doing the work or thinking about something, I can kind of see like the squid and the bacteria and how the chemistry is going back and forth between them Mm -hmm. is part of what fascinates me about what we do. Um, And so, yes, I think I'm firmly in the chemistry bucket.
1: All right, hi Marcy. Um, So I was wondering, how did you get interested in studying natural products?
2: That is a great question, because um, my path has been what I would call circuitous. I don't um, I didn't follow the traditional sort of academic path in, or even just the scientific path of I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it in the, as an undergraduate and a graduate student, a postdoc and then a job instead I got interested pretty early on um, regarding cancer um, medicines and I didn't really know what that meant. I was a chemistry major after being an optical engineering major, after which was really laser physics. And then I switched to chemical engineering hmm. and realizing that wasn't for me. Um, and eventually I got to chemistry. And as I was doing my chemistry work, I was really became more and more interested in ca- cancer drug discovery, and pharmacology, but I didn't know how to get towards that. Organic chemistry doesn't really help with like getting them, getting to something other than the sort of really standard kinds of things. And natural products definitely falls outside of that. And so for me, I think... The next step was thinking about what I wanted to do with cancer. Um, And along the way, I took so many biology classes, I ended up with a double major in biology and um, ended up actually studying ethnobotany in Brazil. And so I went to the Amazon rainforest and uh, talked to people who, as part of a program um, studying Amazon ecology. Uh, Portuguese and um, got to do an independent study on ethnobotany of some of the um, plants that people were using for medicines in this very remote village and so it was that it was done like as soon as I did that I was set like this if I want to do this and so and of course um, this morphed along the way and so I ended up actually taking a little bit of time off between my undergrad and my uh, master's, but I ended up starting a master's in plant ecology and that master's helped me to figure out that I didn't really want to study plant. That there wasn't enough application there,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: and so I moved from there to plant um, to plant natural products, getting a PhD in pharmacognosy, which is one of I think there's only a couple programs that actually call it that anymore.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I had to explain the word pharmacognosy to Allison the other day. <laughs> the, the yeah, philosophy. how
2: did you explain it?
0: <laughs> uh, pharma is uh uh medicine and cognosy is knowledge so it's knowledge of where medicines come from essentially so yeah
2: yeah and so um that was amazing but it didn't have enough field work and so i ended up as a postdoc um panama as part of the international cooperative biodiversity group um and based in panama um and um, was dual there and at Scripps, where I first met Dan. Um, I mm-hmm. think you were almost uh, finishing when I was getting there. But- yeah,
0: yeah, I was uncertain of the timing because I know I know you were you were down in Panama for it, at least you know a good long while.
2: Yes, that's how I got to natural products.
1: Wait, so tell us about this squid-microbe relationship, or is it a microbial community? Squid microbial uh, community relationship.
2: Yes. So I would say that the squid is one is we work on a lot of host microbe symbioses at this point. Mm-hmm. Um and um, but the squid is probably the most charismatic of those. Um, and, and pretty, it's really quite I- intriguing. This squid, the Hawaiian bobtail squid has two organs that solely house whose sole function is to house bacterial associates. Um, and so the one that the Hawaiian bobtail squid is famous for is the light organ. Um, and the light organ houses Vibrio fischeri. It's one strain and there have been years and years and years, about 35, if, Years I think now studying Vibrio fisheri and re- relationship um, to um, to the Hawaiian bobtail squid, and so more recently, my one of my collaborators, Spencer Nyholm, has been working on the accessory nidomental gland, or ANG. And the ANG is a second organ. And so this is what fascinates me, because Mm -hmm. how does this, or we don't have organs for symbiotic bacteria. So what's, what's, uh, I guess, I mean, you could say the gut is kind of, but not the same way. This is designed specifically to house um, symbiotic bacteria. And so we, um, that has a community. And so there are, I I hesitate to make a guess, but maybe 50 to 100 different strains and they are in individual tubules. And so these tubules are like tiny um, monocultures, but the whole of the organ, which is about the size of your pinky nail, um, has maybe 50 to 100 of these. And so And so Spencer and his group have done the microbial profiling for for what's in there. Um, It's it's a fairly well conserved community, but it does vary in terms of which strains and whatnot. And we've been working with him for many several years now on the chemistry um, and biological activity. So the chemistry and function really um, of those microbes that live there. And um, in our work, we've determined that that the, um, the ANG deposits those bacteria um, into the jelly coat of the eggs. Mm -hmm. And so these eggs are laid in a clutch and I would say a clutch is probably the size of a golf ball and has 25 to 50 eggs. I I'm guessing here. Um, And um, that they're laid, unlike octopus, which tend to their eggs, and so they don't get biofilm, um, squid just deposit and take off. And so um, they must be chemically protected in some way. And lo and behold, it's this bacteria. And so the ANG is depositing the bacteria into the jelly coat, to protect the eggs as they're developing over about a month.
0: What are those bacteria making?
2: um, What are those? They make chemistry. And so they, uh, secondary metabolites, specialized metabolites, however Uh we want to call them, obviously. Um, And we've done some work with those um, and have a couple publications out there on the, the chemistry. There's so much work to be done. And more importantly, what we know is they're very, they're quite selective in some way for antifungal activity. They are also, some of them are antibacterial as well. Okay. Um, and so what we think might be happening, we're sort of converging on this model of this being called a an egg defense model. And so maybe there are compounds in there that we know there are compounds in there that are antifungal and antibacterial, but maybe there are compounds in there from the bacteria that are also um, that work against protists, algae, and
1: other types of settlers.
0: Yeah, um, you would think anything that could be swimming in the ocean, right?
1: (laughs) Follow-up question. Does the organ quote all of the bacteria in those different tubules? Because it's like, you know, you have them all separated in the organ, but do they all sort of get evenly distributed on each egg?
2: So you are definitely jumping into the realm of what we don't know. Um, And so um, my collaborator and I have this idea that they work like pastry bags almost. And so they are essentially squeezed out into each of those eggs. And so... Um, as the jelly coat is wrapping around, the bacteria are also being deposited in there. And so whether or not it's the whole community, we don't know. And in fact, we are interested in how the community itself works together to elicit new metabolite production. Um, And we are also interested in how the jelly coat, which is kind of, it's viscous. It's like molasses. It's like it's 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 viscous. And so, um, how the jelly coat works. help concentrate the metabolites. These eggs are tiny. And so how does it, how is it possible that these bacteria, which are not incredibly numerous, are protecting their eggs with these compounds? And we think maybe the jelly coat is holding in some of the the chemistry and helping to concentrate it, but that's Mm -hmm. the next project.
0: Nice.
1: You know, we had talked a little bit about your, your uh, journey and how it took you to to Brazil to Panama uh but then Dan told me that you actually then have done some work at the poles or is it is it the arctic or antarctic but you've you've gone to um uh to retrieve some some bacteria that like it to be really cold can you tell us more about that
2: sure In natural products, one of the things that you have to do when you're starting your group is to figure out what your niche is going to be. What are you (laughs) going to work on that someone else isn't working on or that you bring a unique perspective to? And so um, I was fascinated by we 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 spend a lot of time as natural products chemists and biologists, natural products folks. Looking at the tropics because of this immense amount of biodiversity, what we don't do is spend a lot of time at either of the other either of the poles. And so Bill Baker's lab um, in Florida works in the Antarctic and does some really exciting work there. And I thought, well, why don't we try to go to Alaska um, and see what we can find there? And so. This was in part because the first time I went to Alaska and we were hiking on a glacier, I was entranced. And I was like, well, how do I get back here? And not just how do I get back here, but what is here? Is there anything here? And yeah. so we did quite a bit. We we went and did... Um, We've only gone once, um, but we collected tunicates. Um, from the the tides, there are massive, and so we were able to actually not dive to ke- to collect the marine tunicates, which was nice because it's also cold. Um, <laughs> and um, so we waited till this really low tide, and we able to just collect them off the dock pylons. And uh, we also went back to the glaciers and. Um, had this custom drill made to drill about two feet of glacier core that we field sterilized and brought home. That was unique. Um, and so we have done a little bit of work with that. As, as expected by everyone but me, um, because I was still new in the, the, the field, these glacial bacteria gl- grow slow, Mm -hmm. Um, and they, it's not a hundred percent clear that we know what their biological activities might be. So our hypotheses around this have been that maybe they are because they are so heavily exposed to the sun, maybe they are able to produce chemistry that deals with reactive oxygen species. Um, and so potentially could go down that route.
0: So, so the sun pierces down through the ice pretty well. Is that right?
2: it refracts, actually. Yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's it, they are heavily exposed to sun, um, and the the bacteria that we collected. So, um, the guides that we took with us had this huge pick, and he one of them would um, take the pick and get us about two feet under the surface, mm-hmm. and then we would take our two foot core, and so that's only four feet in, and there there is quite a bit of sun um, and exposure to solar radiation with the refraction through the ice.
0: What's your opinion then on on bioprospecting in sparse nutrient environments versus? The tropics, because because like you say, there there is definitely a uh, a long trend of of people who go on collecting trips in in the tropics. My, you know, uh, Brad Moore, who we talked to, what episode five? You know, he that's that's one of his things uh, for was was for a long time, and uh, I think a lot of people in natural products were there. I've always wondered if, you know, deserts or, you know, maybe glaciers, places where there are less nutrients, there would be more competition. And so you would maybe expect more uh, bioactive, at least antimicrobials, bacteria that, uh, you know, need more defenses, want to defend the the niche or territory that they've they've uh, grown into. So uh, what, what's your feeling about that?
2: So the squid is tropical. It's Hawaiian. It's... Sure. Uh, It's doing it's it's getting bacteria from there. We work on um, a fungus garden ant as well as well as the American honeybee. Um, And so I have multiple opinions, um, which I'm never (laughs) short of but um, the In terms of thinking about these sparse nutrient environments, I think that you're right. I think that we haven't explored them as much. There was an ICBG in Jordan to do just this okay. several years back. Um, and, and that's really exciting to think about looking at desert organisms. Um, there's the group in um, that looks at the Antarctic, and we've done a little bit now in the, in not quite in the Arctic, but in Alaska, in these polar regions. and. I think that there's potential, but I don't think we know how to harness it yet. I don't think it's actually one of the things that I think is a major challenge in natural products is that we don't know what all the biosynthetic gene clusters look like. We have so much information about what the actinomycete biosynthetic gene clusters look like, and we're just getting to where that's getting expanded. But most of what we saw in Alaska is not actinomycetes. Mm-hmm. And, and this actually holds true for the host microbe work that we do now, that is really our main focus now. I think they're not sparse nutrients environments at all. The human gut, for example, um, this Hawaiian bobtail squid is feeding, it's doing some sort of interaction with its microbes that it's getting but yet the organisms are not, they're not almost never actinomycetes. Um, And so when we look at their genomes, we don't get the same kind of information that we would hope for, but yet they produce chemistries.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we need, we need more people like you finding the molecules so that then we can tie them back to the gene clusters, right? The more, more info we have, the more info we have.
2: Well, so I have a question for you. I don't know that this will go in, but do you think there are always clusters? Do you think that they always Uh, cluster or could the genes be separated on a genome?
0: Oh yeah. It's biology. So anything is possible. Right. Uh, And um, uh, I think in the kind of environments that we've looked at, like the nutrient rich tropical kinds of environments where there are more bacteria, there is more horizontal transfer. And so it's beneficial then to have secondary metabolism on uh, uh, in proximity within the genome so that things can transfer. Um, you know, uh, uh, plants are a different kind of environment. You don't have plants interacting with lots of other plants, except, you know, in, in very, very local environments. Right. And so they don't transfer a lot of, um, DNA back and forth, especially across species. And so, uh, then there isn't horizontal transfer. And so those, uh, pathways don't have to be clustered, and so they aren't. Um, they end up probably over time dispersing across the chromosome. So I think that's my feeling. and so it could could very well be that that um, in species that don't do a lot of horizontal transfer, you won't see a lot of clustered secondary metabolism. That's always been my feeling, but I don't really have, you know, any kind of statistical evidence for that. Yeah, oh, you asked me a question. That's cool. <laughs>
2: That's my job.
1: (laughs) Marcy, is that something that your lab is exploring?
2: Mm. Um, So this gets back to Dan's comment about me being a chemist. Um, The answer is we find that some of our bacteria produce chemistry, that we know from actin mice with their, their proteobacteria typically, but not always, but often proteobacteria, we find chemistry that's known or sometimes novel, but often known. And yet the clusters don't look the same. And so I don't, so, so I think that there's opportunity with the organisms we're working on, but we're not per chan, per exactly working on that. So. Um, It is beyond the realm of, I wouldn't even know how to start if, if I must say.
1: Maybe Dan, is that something that you think you could help with? Like in, in your vein of research, you know, using bioinformatics um, down the line, maybe that's something that your research will help inform.
0: I mean, yeah, that's, that's certainly the goal. I think um, with, with any kind of gene cluster identification, Doing it, you know, with sequence alone, you have to have some kind of a template to look for, right? And so, so like a, a, you know, a type one polyketide synthase is, is, is very easy to search for because there, there are patterns of domains, protein domains that you look for. And if you find those all together in the same place in the chromosome, then, then you've definitely found a biosynthetic gene cluster. And so those are, those are really easy to look for. And um, we've talked to, to, to Marnix about anti-smash, and that's exactly what that does. But uh, when you get more diverse, um, which almost certainly there's a lot more stuff out there that we don't know about exactly what Marcy's talking about, then you you have to first there's an interplay between the sequence and the chemistry where you, you have to have one or the other first in order to sort of inform the other right There's always a dance back and forth. And so if um, you if you have, some, if you have a, a chemical compound that you've structurally characterized and you understand what that molecule is, then you can start thinking about how that molecule was built and you should be able to find genes uh, in the organism in its sequence that that encode for that biosynthesis. Uh, but sometimes you have to, you have to know what those are in the first place. And so, you know, for a long time, whenever you did a genome sequence, about 40% of the the genome, the genes were completely unidentifiable. You had no idea what they were doing. Those numbers are a lot lower now, but I think in secondary metabolism, you know, those numbers are still actually pretty high in terms of understanding from, from just c- sequence gazing alone, what, what those are. And so, like I say, you, you do need that back and forth between chemistry and sequence to get anywhere. Like, that's why, that's why I say the more, you know, the more, you know, because it really does build exponentially. When you find new things, you can usually find those things somewhere else out in, in all the different genomes uh, and uh, also in the chemistry.
2: We isolated linkamycin from one of our um, squid bacteria mm-hmm. and we see the linkamycin genes in the genome, but, and it's not a hundred, it's not a closed genome. So this is part of the problem because it could sure. be an assembly problem, but we don't see them clustered and so, mm. but wh- why, why not? <laughs> we see the chemistry, so what's going on? So is it a genome sequence issue or is it a, um, it, it like, did we sequence it wrong or is it that it's doing something different or working differently to make that same molecule?
0: Yeah, there's, there's no inherent reason, I think why a biosynthetic pathway needs to be clustered just because it's the usual trend, I don't know if that's confirmation bias, where you look for the things that you know how to find, right? And so, you know, clustered biosynthetic gene clusters are things we can usually find. Just like I said, you find, you have a pattern to search for and you find clusters of that pattern, you got it, right? But uh, if they're not clustered, then maybe we're not really identifying them very well. For sure. But there, yeah, it, there's, uh, you know, plants certainly make all kinds of compounds and, and some, some of their stuff is clustered, but often, often it isn't, or it's, it's, you know, separated by thousands of KV in terms of like strange chromosomal patterns that I don't, I'm not a plant guy. So I, <laughs> I don't even understand all of the the vagaries of, of plant biosynthesis, but um, uh, I, I, I do know that it's complicated, <laughs> which is why I don't know anything about it. <laughs> But but you know you can you can carry that that idea to bacteria for sure. On your website, and you've got some some pubs on this. There is there is at least a, a paragraph or so on accessing silent chemistry, and it does, it does sound like you know you're still interested in in that for sure. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, your approach to that and and what you guys do when you're exploring your systems, because um, I think. The JGI has a little bit of a different approach. We don't really do culturing. And a lot of our uh, trying to access silent chemistry is usually going to be through synthetic biology or or, um, genetic engineering. But uh, I think from what I've read, you've done a lot more with culture and uh, culture permutations and and whatnot. So uh, is that a better approach?
2: (laughs) Oh, I I don't think it's better. It's what we can do. Um, I I don't know that it's I think they're in parallel, right? And so, if if what you're set up to do is is to do synthetic biology, that's awesome. Uh, what we're set up to do is to explore the elicitation of new metabolites using cultures. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons we're excited about it is because we can see new chemistry happening. Um, And so one of the recently published papers was about doing this with human pathogens. And I had an undergrad in the lab who um, was just outstanding. And she, she decided to, she said to me, so if we, Take these human pathogens that we usually use as an as an antibacterial assay. If we take one of those and co-culture them with, mm-hmm. say, one of our actinobacteria, um, what what will happen? Will it create chemistry that then is more bioactive against the 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 human pathogen? And lo and behold, that's what we see or yeah. what we saw with that with that particular publication. And so that was it was a lot of fun to do that paper and. Um, to have her in the lab, obviously, but it was also really, how does it work? And so one of the things that we've come to there is that um, co-culture with MRSA, with methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, worked better in in elicitation of these molecules than co-culture with methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus. So just regular Staph aureus didn't work as well. Why? There's got to be some sort of protein or interaction or chemistry that the co-culture with MRSA is doing differently, even than this other strain that's really closely related. And so we don't know the answer because I can bet that that's Allison's next question. Um, But but it's an exciting question in thinking about what it is between the chemistry of these different, um, the hosts, and and I often think of the host having a protein-based chemistry, but I think that's not necessary. There are ho- small molecules that hosts make as well, and so hosts and microbes, and just the interaction between them to produce different chemistry. And so we we've been very excited about that. We have more recently been, and this would should be on our website, but of course is not, and so been working with metals, um, and in particular rare earth elements or rare earth metals. Mm. Um, to with our cultures and we see a very some very interesting uh, changes in the chemistry when we so if you use too much of these rare earth metals they'll they'll kill the the bacteria but if you use a really a small amount of them the chemistry that you see changes quite a bit and so what we don't know is is it oxidative stress mm-hmm. um is it just causing stress but metals that are known to cause oxidative stress doesn't produce the same chemistry the chemistry mm-hmm. only happens with the rare earth metals and so and so what's happening and so is it and so i get pretty excited in thinking about the biosynthetic implications of this—is it interacting with the a, a, like a binding pocket um, for mm-hmm. one of the enzymes? So mm-hmm. um, something that's metal-dependent. Is it? Uh, and we don't know. And so, but but it is sort of the next step is both to harness the chemistry that the rare earth metals are causing, as well as test to make sure that they're that chemistry is actually more bioactive since we're interested in the biological activity Um, and then thinking about how they are interacting. Is it only with actinobacteria or is it with our host microbacteria as well? And so um, the bacteria that we have been working on for this is a streptomyces that we isolated from a tunicate. Does it work with um, the proteobacteria that we've been talking about? And we don't know. We have, that's, we've got lots of avenues here
1: two clarifying questions. One is, what is silent chemistry? And then two, what is co-culturing?
2: So the term silent chemistry or silent biosynthetic gene clusters is can be controversial. Um, people use cryptic or silent or hidden, um, obscured. Um, and But it mostly, it means that we, especially when we take a bacteria that lives in a community, in an environment, in in a place that it has stress and or interactions with other bacteria or other hosts or just different things we take that we grow it on we we grow it on an agar plate and in that on that agar plate we often feed it lots of nutrients and in the process of giving it all these nutrients um, we make it happy and uh there's a little bit of anthrop- anthropomorphizing um, but it doesn't always produce the chemistry that you would see it produce if it were under the stressors and the environmental interactions that it has in the environment. And so in order to deal with the the fact that our our individual monocultures are not producing chemistry, we can do what's called co-culturing. And so co-culturing, takes many forms. Um, The ant project that we're working on has one of the slowest growing bacteria that I've ever worked with. And so that is done on an auger plate with a strip of the bacteria down the middle waiting two weeks sometimes for it to grow and then putting um, some stressor bacteria on the plate as well. And so cross-streak assays is what those would be. The work that we do at larger scale in order to look at the chemistry a little bit more easily is in liquid culture. And we have a co-culture in this case would be we have sort of we, we have a culture of the bacterium growing at fairly large scale, and we add a small a very small amount of something else to cause a little bit of stress to cause those interactions to happen and that in our experience and other experience, others' experience is is great for helping the chemistry to to be upregulated or to produce chemistry.
0: How would you try to tackle that? Uh, would, you, would you do that through metabolomics or sequence or both or
2: so we do so much more metabolomics than i ever thought we would Um, yeah that's really where i wanted you to go with this (laughs) yes and so we started out in the universe of uh, natural product isolation and um In listening to some of the other podcasts, I will say that my experience with mass spectrometry was nearly identical to most others, Mm -hmm. where the mass spectrometer was somewhere else, and we didn't really have access to it. And now we have them in our labs, and we are doing mass spectrometry on this massive scale. And of course, that brings about massive problems, just as much as it brings about massive data and really interesting ways to look at our systems. And so... We've done quite a bit of work figuring out how to um, filter filter out noise for uh, from the from the metabolomics data. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of work um, learning about how to use statistical analyses to prioritize both um, to analyze our bigger system questions as well as to prioritize which strain to look at, um, and then and then figuring out how to show this data and to do it in a way that that makes sense. And um, I always call this the needle in the haystack because if we have 10,000 features, Which one do we look at because we are a small lab how do we do this and how do we know it's real and so we spend a lot of time uh have been in the last several years figuring out how to adapt what we want to get out of the mass spectrometer to what we're seeing and all in all we haven't spent much time yet talking about biological activity but because that's sort of the end goal for a lot of what we do we would then test them and so Getting the the bioassays, on uh, antimicrobial, antifungal, potentially anti-cancer or immune modulatory assays to to see what role the compound might be playing in the system and then what role it might be, we might be able to apply it for for drug discovery.
0: Tell me about that biological activity testing then, because I know that, you know, uh, I I have been out of that game for a long time now at this point. And so uh, I I know that. Usually, the the plan was you would isolate a molecule and then you would throw it at say uh, an NCI cancer panel and and kind of see what happened, right? Or or if you're doing antibiotics, you would test it against a panel of bacteria and 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 see what happens. Is that what's what's the modern way of doing that, or is it still the same kind of thing?
2: I think the ideal is to use some sort of screening center. Mm -hmm. um, that can do this at high throughput. And so there are several of these throughout the country. Um, and there are folks that are lucky enough to have them at their university. We are not one of them. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, um, our throughput can be quite small. Um, but so we do a lot of work in the lab thinking about how to test, our extracts, our simplified fractions, potentially even the organisms itself. So doing sort of simplified, super simple dist diffusion type assays. Mm -hmm. And, And then using that to integrate with the metabolomics data. So we've got a, a control and a treatment, for example, and we, we get LCMS data for those. And we also at the same time get bioassay data against a small panel is what I would say from our lab and see what's happening. And so I think that this is one of the places function um, or activity, depending on how you want to think about them, is that one of the really big frontiers for the next stage of natural product drug discovery, I think, or even chemical ecology—figuring out what these molecules do in the human gut, in yeah. the squid, in like how do they work, what do they work with, how do we figure out what they work on?
0: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still that's, not solved. No, not at all. Not 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 even close. It's <laughs> a that's a very difficult problem, but that's that's the holy grail, right? Uh, and then
1: to, it's not only like what one individual microbe might be doing and how that individual microbe is interacting with the host, but then it's the whole community. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it's it's such a big problem <laughs> to tackle.
2: Well, right. And so now you think about all the permutations that you could see here. So we've got 50 to 100 microbes in the accessory nanomental gland for the squid. Um, mm-hmm. And in the jelly coat, they get the opportunity to interact and they may interact in the squid itself, but I don't know enough about that biology. And so now we've got this large number of microbes in, interacting and having a function. So we have to figure out their, their the it's, it's so much data. I cannot imagine it's like multifactorial data, like all of yeah. the interactions of the bacteria and all of the biological activity possibilities.
0: Mm-hmm. So- mm-hmm keep us all busy for a long time.
2: It will. Are you going to solve it at JGI?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure
2: change JGI.
0: <laughs> JGI is great, I... but we're not solving that problem. <laughs>
2: no, I'm just, I'm not sure. There are people working in metabolomics. Um, there are people working on culturing elicitation. There are people working on function and, and biological yeah. activity they There are some that work together, and but yet I'm not sure that even in all of this, I see the path to fully integrate all of them at a level that we could ask what the function is and feel confident that we know the answer. Mm-hmm. So, holy grail for sure.
0: Let me ask you about your JGI project. I know you are involved with a project that's looked at, um, uh, ants and their, uh, symbiotic arrangement with a fungus and bacteria that protect the fungus. And, uh, we, we talked to Mark Chevret in, in, I think episode seven, uh, about this, uh, and, and really his focus was on the evolution of these systems. And I understand you've worked on some of the the chemistry or metabol metabolomics of it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure,
2: um, so I work on this project with Jonathan Claussen here at mm-hmm. the University of Connecticut and he uh, has been looking at these fungus gardening ants for quite some time. Um, and so he's, he was the, the lead on, on our project with JGI um, in part to do some really exciting work on figuring out how to get genomic sequencing data for the fungus garden um, because it's more challenging in many ways there's, there's symbiotic bacteria that live within that fungus garden, let alone the bacteria that lives on the propleural plate or the mm-hmm. chest of the ant. Yeah. Um, and so we, in this project, uh, so the interaction with JGI was really around sequencing for, I think for the fungus garden and some of the bacterial symbionts. And so, <laughs> and, and of course the work that we're doing is, um, secondary metabolite related and, we are interested in um, we are interested in multiple things here. A little bit in drug discovery, uh, we have a, a molecule that is probably new, but also related to some known chemistry. And so we are working on that aspect, and it's quite active against um, some fungi. But we're also really interested in distribution. So we work on uh, the the ant is called trachomermic septentrionalis, um, and it is uh mostly in the in the north america um and so we can go and collect these things and we did um uh, Jonathan's lab does this all the time we instead have only gone once or twice and so we're interested in the chemistry this is a multipartite system and so what's fascinating about this system is that there's an ant and that ant has behaviors, but it also has this bacterial um, symbiont, pseudocardia that lives on its chest mm-hmm. and protects the fungus garden. It, it it gardens the fungus in order to make it make parts of it for food. Um, and and in our some of our more recent work, what we've discovered is that it's able to sense pathogen exposure in the garden. Um, And we obviously, as a chemist, my first instinct is this is chemistry. This sense, whatever it's sensing is chemistry. And so we've done quite a bit of work now um, and are hoping to publish something uh, soon on on what that chemistry is. And and the next steps in that project are really to figure out how does the ant sense it? Is it a signal from the pathogen to the ant, or is it a signal from the pathogen to the fungi to the ant and how that works?
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, we're probably out of time. Is there anything we didn't ask you that, it, that you want to make sure, anything you want to get out there, any papers you want to push or anything like that?
2: I didn't talk about, um, like we talked to, and and I've noticed that you're you stay focused on the science, and I think that's great. But um, I spend a lot of time nowadays thinking about women and uh, gender and racial equity in, mm-hmm. in natural products and in my school, in my university, and in the different places. Um, it's interesting how much of our lives as scientists are revolve around our science, but then also about giving access to to various different groups and overcoming mm-hmm. challenges that we have along the way based on our backgrounds. So,
1: well, Marcy, did you have anything concrete to say about? Yeah,
0: I'm more than happy to, to give you any kind of a platform.
1: That's interesting,
0: just mm-hmm.
2: making sure that natural products is as inclusive as it can be, um, and that it's an open and welcoming environment for scientists of all. Like, one of the things that's so great about natural products is, it's so many different kinds of science. And for because sure. of that, we get to pull in a whole bunch of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, I think, I think like Marcy says, our field definitely thrives on uh, diversity for s- certainly of, of scientific thought. And there's no reason that's, that's, you know, <laughs> there's no reason for that diversity of thought to be all white males for sure. Um, and I, I think, I, I think natural products is a pretty good job of that. I mean, we're, we're better than some fields for sure. Uh, but things can definitely always be better. Yes. Uh,
2: I always think of us as being more inclusive in natural products, yeah. but it doesn't always boil into like trickle up into the faculty ranks. So. Yeah.
1: Thank yeah. you. Thank you for mentioning it. I think it's, it's something that we all need to think more about and we all need to you know, speak up about it. And it makes that conversation easier and more present for everyone. So thank you, Marcy. Sure.
0: This has been great. Thanks a lot, Marcy.
1: Thanks, Dan. And thanks, Allison. Nice to meet you.
2: It's been very good to be here.
0: So good seeing you again, uh, my, my old Connecticut buddy. And uh, <laughs> hope we can talk again soon. I'm Dan Udry, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalpodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co-host, Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism. And if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too. So check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jezar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at jgi coms that's jgi-comms, at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time.